This is Podcast Q with Matt Henney. That's me, and I'm recording this at East Point while Kim Jackson is in Stone Mountain. Hi, Kim. Hi. Good morning, Matt. Kim is an ordained priest, but more importantly, at least for this interview, is likely to become the first ever LGBTQ person elected to the Georgia Senate and will boost the number of LGBTQ lawmakers in the Georgia General Assembly to seven, which is a record number. And she did that by winning a four-person Democratic primary in June and did so by capturing more than 50% of the vote and avoiding a runoff, which is impressive in its own right. And it was her first run for public office. Congratulations on your win, Kim. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm really excited about it. So we're recording this in late July. So it's been several weeks since the election. Has it sunk in yet? It's starting to. uh, It's still... I think not having a runoff was our goal, and yet it was also kind of unbelievable that we don't have a runoff. And so I think I'm still kind of wrapping my head around that piece of like that, this kind of hard campaigning is done, which I did for a whole year. So I think it takes a little while to kind of slow that down. Right, right. Kind of kind of come out of that routine, I can imagine. Yeah, it was an open seat. And so there were four candidates in the Democratic primary, which just in ge- a general sense is what makes that even more impressive that you were able to uh, win uh, and do so so commandingly. How, how'd you do it? What was your secret? A lot of hard work. And, uh, you know, we did start a full year in advance. I think that made a difference. Um, But perhaps more truthfully, I started a lifetime ago, right? Like I started preparing to run for office when I first landed in Atlanta and knew that Atlanta would be home. And so I've been cultivating the relationships that I needed to have. I've been really preparing um, both mentally, physically and spiritually for a run. So I think I I came into this race um, in many years you know, a decade ahead of my my competitors just because I'd been preparing for so long. So in November, you faced Republican William Freeman in a district that leans heavily Democratic, the Victory Fund, which endorsed you said it's likely that you'll win that race. So what's your take on the uh, on the November uh, November race? And and I'm sure even in a heavily Democratic district, you don't want to overlook the fact that you still do have uh, an election in November. Yeah, that's right. You know, we don't take any win for granted at all. Um, The numbers are certainly in our favor. We're 85% plus Democratic. So um, it's it would be a very unlikely, uh, very extremely unlikely for me to lose. But certainly we continue to campaign. And I think everybody knows that this election, perhaps more than ever, uh, people have to show up to vote. And so I'm really taking on the responsibility of making sure that my 85% in District 41 show up to cast a ballot, obviously not just for me, but for for president, um, for our Senate seats. It's just really crucial and key. And so, um, so much of our focus will actually be on getting out to vote. Um, people, people have already chosen me in many ways in my district, right? So now we just want to make sure they do that again and, and certainly make sure they vote for um, the president and the Senate and, and other seats as well. Right. And that's less than 100 days in the in the primary in many metro counties. There were problems voting. Are you concerned that there's uh, that those problems haven't been fixed uh, in time for the for the November election? I'm certainly concerned. Um, So my district was impacted by that in that. Excuse me. There were um, there were precincts in my district that didn't open on time because the machines literally had not shown up. 
um, they they didn't arrive, so people didn't have equipment to to vote on, and so certainly that remains a concern. I've been following and monitoring uh, DeKalb County elections, especially the vast majority of my district is in DeKalb County, and uh, I I do feel confident that the board of elections, the um, particularly the the commissioners, are on top of this and are deeply committed to making sure that we correct this. Everyone knows this this election in November is so, so important. And so I think that they brought in an A team to really try to address these issues. In Senate District 41, it's near the intersection of the top end, uh, 285 and 85, and includes portions of Stone Mountain, Clarkston, Tucker, Lilburn. Did I get that right? That's right. Talk some about the district. It also includes Pine Lake, which is a quite a little lesbian enclave from what I know of it. Uh, talk a little bit about it and, and what you saw on the campaign trail. Like you said, you've been campaigning uh, for, for a year. So I have an incredibly diverse district, and, and certainly Pine Lake is, is in the district. I actually only live about a mile and a half from, from Pine Lake uh, Indeed, a lovely lesbian enclave. There, there are some straight folks there too. I learned. Uh, I didn't didn't know that until I had some house parties in Pine Lake, and there were straight people who showed up. Uh, so it's a it's a cool place. Um, and but the district is just incredibly diverse. So you've got this kind of lesbian enclave of Pine Lake. That's a majority white city, and then you just wait, walk down the street, and you have Clarkston, which is a refugee resettlement location and has you know, over 80 languages that are spoken there, people from all around the world. You know, if there has been a major war in that place, and there's a high likelihood that there's someone from that country now who calls Clarkson home. Uh, and then you have Lilburn, which is in Gwinnett, and again, an incredibly diverse community with a significant South Asian population that lives there too. Um, and you have this mixture of the of municipal places, right? So places like Tucker, where people have kind of a city identity, and then you have a huge swath of unincorporated DeKalb County, and people who are deeply committed and love that it's unincorporated. Incorporated, um, and again, the diversity in terms of race, in terms of religion, uh, sex, and sexual orientation is—it's absolutely amazing. And so, it was actually a lot of fun when we could be on a campaign trail and we could actually go places um, to really engage with the vast uh, diversity that my district has. So we wrote about your campaign on Project Q back in July 2019, about a year ago. What uh, what prompted you to get into the race? Yeah, you all wrote the article. I think it was titled Activist Lesbian Priest Seeks to Become First Senator, um, which was uh, I'd never had the modifier lesbian in front of priest before until that day. It, it became it, ca- it caught on, though. So I'm, I'm used to being called a lesbian priest now. I got in this race because I felt and still feel deeply committed to helping make Georgia a better place and a better place for all of us, right? Um, I knew when I was 13 years old that I wanted to run for office. I come from a really small town and went to a city council meeting and they had elected their first black mayor. So there was somebody who was sitting in that seat that looked like me and I watched them make decisions that really made a difference, a positive difference in my city. And that was that light bulb moment for me 
that said, oh, um, I don't know the where, I don't know the when, and I honestly don't know how, but I do know that I feel called to make a difference in the world. And so elected office was a clear way that that could happen and uh, what I really set my sights on. And so um, I've really been working towards that. And and I think I want to be clear that I'm also running because I have a deep commitment to caring for people. My, my ministry has largely been focused on people who are living on the margins, who find themselves marginalized and often their voices are not heard. So whether it was working with communities in People's Town or my current position, um, caring and serving as a minister to people experiencing homelessness. Um, those those folks, um, people who look like me, who love like us, um, people who often find themselves um, getting the short end of the stick when it comes to legislation, quite frankly. Um, I, I wanted to run on behalf of us to make sure that we got a, got a fair shake here, too. Also in 2019, you were one of the grand marshals for the Atlanta Pride Parade. What was uh, what was that like? What was it like riding in the in the parade that October? That was unbelievable and amazing. And, uh, you know, so my my wife, my spouse, Trina, was a grand marshal about four years before that in, in 2015. And, you know, I'd, I'd ridden with her and that was really incredible. But it, it was it was different when, you know, I was the actual grand marshal. And I think I felt inc- incredibly honored. Like I I have been out since my the whole time that I've been here in Atlanta and I've I've worked as an a, an activist and advocate within the queer community but being named a grand marshal felt like a confirmation of oh I see you and an affirmation of and we value your work and so that was really incredibly beautiful for me um, and the last thing I want to say that about that is that um, Pride for me has always been this place where I feel like I get all the energy that I need uh, to make it through another year of living as a black queer person in the South, right? So every, every year I go to the Pride Parade and when I was a college chaplain, I actually would bring, I would bring gabies with me, especially, so that they could see. Because you know, when you when you walk in Pride, when when you walk in the parade, and then you turn down, I guess that's Tenth Street, sorry. Uh, and there's so many people. It's like it, it feels so impossible to not love oneself for being gay in that moment. And pride has been that for me since the, you know, since I arrived here in in 2006 and when pride was still in the summer and it was hot, (laughs) Um, you know, and so I think to be a part of that process, to be a part of that parade, to be a part of showing love and affirmation to all the gaybies who were standing out there just also felt like such a gift because that had been such a gift for me too. I feel that same way as well. And I, sh- I shoot the parade uh, for Project Q for photos and have done it for years. And uh, it's just amazing. Like, I, you know, as the build up to the parade comes, I'm like, oh, do I really want to stand out there for three hours? And, you know, at the corner of Peachtree and 10th is where the protesters are kind of corralled. And so you have to listen to them. But it, I, so I kind of have some dread doing it. And then I go out there and do it and experience it again. And it, it, I, I can't agree with you more. It's just it's just energized. And to see the crowds there and and just really um, be present in that moment to to enjoy all that is the parade is really energizing. So in that profile that that, uh, I talked about that was from last year, you talked about how you sit at the intersection of so many identities. What, What did you mean by that? 
so I'm black, I'm queer, I'm female, I'm clergy, um, which is its own sort of identity, and specifically I'm Christian, uh, and I'm, I'm Southern. I think all of those pieces come together and in really important ways. And uh, I'm not, I don't, I didn't look at the article most recently, but I certainly was thinking about how important it is to have someone in the Senate who knows what it is to have a, to have the queer experience, um, who knows firsthand. So I'm not sure if folks are aware, but oftentimes the most gay, the most Uh, anti-gay legislation, the most homophobic legislation that we get in Georgia often starts in the Senate. That's the place. And there's there's nobody who's gay, who's queer in the Senate. And so they can they can do that without having to look someone in the face who it directly affects. Right. And so, um, you know, when they when they want to start talking about whether or not gay people should be allowed to have um, allowed to adopt children, then it's important for me to be in that space for them to have to have that conversation, not just about us, but like to me. And, you know, I think about the intersection, particularly in this season that we're in as Georgia. And I think the country is going through a true racial awakening to be a black person, another black person sitting in that Senate to talk about the ways that black lives matter, um, to talk about the import of blackness and the import of fighting against anti-blackness is just another important piece. And then, you know, of, of course, protecting women's rights to choose um, is I think incredibly essential. And as a black woman, that piece is, you know, highlighted even more. Um, black women are the ones who are most impacted when we shut down our ability to choose and, and around reproductive rights. And so all of those intersections, I just think are incredibly important because I can represent, I can speak, um, I can speak the stories of my own stories that fit into so many different places um, and really do match up with, I think, so much of the diversity that is within Georgia already. And that's and that's one of the reasons I'm so excited for you to be in the Senate is, is what you what you just said that 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 the Senate and I've covered the state legislature for years and uh, oftentimes uh, when uh, legislation comes up it's anti LGBTQ the exception was finally this year when a hate crimes bill was passed but so often um, uh, it is anti LGBTQ legislation and supporters of those bills use religion to back their anti gay views. And I just think it's going to be fantastic that now these senators will have to look at somebody who who uh, is a pastor uh, and a lesbian and a person of color uh, as they consider you know the bills that they're they're putting forward. Have you? Uh, I'm sure you have. How have you considered your experience as a priest uh, and it's with the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta? Is that right? That's right. Uh, have you? How have you considered how that will inform your work as a as a state senator? I, I want to start by saying I deeply value and recognize the importance of having the separation between church and state. I think that's absolutely important to this to the integrity of our democracy, right? Um, and as you said, many people, many state legislators often wield religion, specifically bad Christian theology, um, as a tool. They weaponize it in order to continue to oppress people. And so I, I think a lot about my theological education as being able to be used as a tool to help um, counterbalance that really bad theology, but also specifically because I've been an Episcopal priest and I've served in a, a myriad of, of traditions uh, within the within the context of the church. 
I have a lot of experience of working with people who believe different things than I do. Um, I served for as a pastor for three years in a congregation with 3,000 members, and we call it a purple church, kind of half blue, half red. And I, and I pastored both sides, right? I, I pastored um, with the people who were deeply conservative in their political views, and I, and I pastored with people who um, perhaps are even more liberal than I am. And so I have that experience of being able to bring those folks together. Uh, And then also I I have these... I think a lot of people have theories about why we should pass certain laws or um, why certain people need to be protected. And I have these real stories. So let's let's take, for instance, the issue of maternal mortality. So in Georgia, the maternal maternal mortality rate is extremely high compared to other states. And I can talk about that from a statistical point of view, but I can also talk about the fact that I've had to bury a mother and an infant who died in childbirth. And there's something, there's something real and authentic when you can come and stand in a well and, and tell that story and have those images in your heart as you are seeking to pass legislation that protects women's, um, women and people who give birth um, in that process. And so I think that's another piece of the, the pastoring that I've done that helps make me a better lawmaker ultimately. I first met you in 2017 when you joined uh, clergy members at the state capitol rally against religious freedom, freedom legislation, which you also did a year earlier in 2016. So January, you'll be back there under the gold dome, this time as a, as a lawmaker uh, in the Senate, uh, controlled by Republicans who are mostly older white men. How do you prepare for that? Well, I've been having a lot of conversations with uh, legislators who are not old white men um, to, to learn from them about how they've prepared for it and how they've dealt with it. Um, I I feel like it's really important for me to come in as informed as I possibly can about uh, about the different personalities. And, and certainly if they will take my calls, um, I'm, I'm also seeking to talk to those Republican legislators just to introduce myself. I really think, and perhaps this comes out of my pastoring lens, I think that building relationships is really important. And so I'm trying to, to do that work as a part of my preparation um, but then the other piece of the other side of this is that I'm also just getting really grounded and really clear about the principles and the values from which I would seek to legislate and the ways that, you know, regardless of um, how passionate a legislator may be about passing really bad bills, I, I'm getting grounded and really clear about, well, here are the values that I stand for and, and also, I'm so deeply aware of the dynamics of my own district and the makeup. As a, as a senator representing District 41, which has, I mean, if you name a religion, there is a worshiping community in my district who is a part of that religion. And if you name people who are not religious, those folks are present in my district. And so I also am clear about my responsibility to represent them well and make sure that they are able to worship freely while also providing the accommodations to the public that they are required to do so by the Constitution.
And while you'll be the only LGBTQ person in the Senate, there are, as it stands right now, five and likely to be six uh, LGBT folks in the House, including Carla Drenner, who is, was the first first LGBT person elected to the state house. Uh, and so you have uh, their experiences drawn. Carla Drenner, Park Cannon, Renita Shannon, Sam Park, Matthew Wilson. Have, have you talked with them uh, and, and sort of tried to glean some, some lessons and experience from, from what they've been through? Absolutely. Uh, you know, early on, I reached out to the, the gay caucus, if you will, um, and spoke with and was deeply honored to be endorsed by all of the, the folks that you named. Um, and, you know, Park Cannon, Park Cannon actually uh, had me honored by a commendation by the, the state house a few years before I ran. And so she and I have developed a relationship over over the years. It's been really helpful. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned from them is uh, the importance of of being really clear about who you are. That's I've so appreciated their they're direct. They are out, right? They are clearly out, and they are out in the house. And I think it's helpful that they have five of them together. Um, but they are also out in the community with us, and that has been so such inspiration to me. I think it's also helped. It was one of the things that helped me know that this was possible, right? So when I saw a park cannon who was very out and very present in the community and showing up at gay functions, you know, as representative Park Cannon. And, you know, before her, I want to lift up Simone Bell, who was the first African-American queer legislator ever elected in the entire world, in fact, uh, on the state level, a state legislator who was out. I'm sure there were others who weren't out. But the first out uh, one. And, you know, those those folks have been the inspiration. I, I, I just want to say, you know, when I first came out in, I don't know, 2006, when I, you know, 2006, when I came out, I thought that I lost a number of dreams. I thought that I had lost the possibility of becoming a clergy person. And I also thought that I had lost the possibility of ever being elected. Um, I thought that that was the price that I had to pay in order to love freely the people, the kind of person that I loved, right? Um, And so coming to Atlanta and meeting queer clergy on one hand, but then meeting the Simone Bells, the Park Cannons, the Renita Shannons was the thing that inspired me to know that it wasn't lost, that this was possible. And so, um, yes, I have talked to these folks. I'm, I'm learning from them. I have learned from them and will continue to learn from them. And I really look forward to working with them. So sort of on the flip side, how do you balance, and you you talked a little bit about how Park Cannon approaches this. How will you balance being one of seven LGBTQ members of the General Assembly? And that sort of brings dual responsibilities. You sort of have a responsibility that comes with uh, or to Metro Atlanta's larger LGBTQ population, but you also have your district and your constituency in in DeKalb uh, and Gwinnett. So how do you balance those uh, those two constituencies, essentially? I, I think that it's similar to being a, an out gay pastor. So as as an out gay pastor, I had a responsibility to care for and pastor, uh, you know, all of the people, all the members of my congregation. And I also pastored a whole lot of like young queer folks who actually have nothing to do with church, but they needed some affirmation. And so I've been kind of balancing that that all along of recognizing. Uh, and I think this is true for often for minorities. We 
we almost always have two or three jobs, right? Like we've got to do our job and then we have to do the job of being the black person who's on staff and we have to do the job of being the woman who's on staff and, the, you know, and then add the LGBTQ person on staff, right? Like all of that. So I'm, I'm used to doing that work. Um, and I do feel like Park Cannon and Matthew Wilson and, 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 and Sam and all, all of that entire gay caucus have done an incredible job of setting a model for me of what that actually looks like. So, so I know the part that I need to show up for for in the LGBTQ community because I've I've watched them I've been there and I've watched them show up for those things too and um, and there are also organizations like my relationship with Georgia Equality is really important to me and I think that Georgia Equality will help me um, maintain that balance will help make sure that I am able to address things that are really important to the LGBTQ community um, while also certainly me living and caring for and being present in my district. When we profiled you last year, your platform included the goals of passing an LGBTQ-inclusive civil rights bill, beating back anti-LGBTQ religious freedom bills, protecting women's reproductive rights, Medicaid expansion, better access to childhood care, and raising the minimum wage. Are those still key issues, or has the platform sort of changed in in the years since we, we did that story? No, those remain really key issues. Now, obviously, there was no COVID-19 when we were writing in 2019. And so... all of those things remain key. I think that I want to lift up the expansion of Medicaid um, as being a, a high priority, especially as we are dealing with uh, a pandemic. And, so, you know, the, the increasing of minimum wage. Now I would add with that the importance of us ensuring that unemployment benefits uh, remain available to Georgia citizens as we go through this pandemic. Um, but those kind of big issues of health care, public uh, of, of public education, uh, anti-discrimination, those things are, those remain really big and key priorities for me in this work, because I think that those things are actually crucial and fundamental to us being able to have a Georgia where everyone has an opportunity to thrive. Can you talk about the what you saw in terms of LGBTQ community in the district as you were uh, as you were campaigning over the last last year? I know, of course, you know, Midtown is sort of the, you know, I guess standard bearer for gay districts in Metro Atlanta, uh, less so now than it, than it was even a decade ago. But is there sort of a community there in, in District 41 in that area of DeKalb? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've already talked about Pine Lake as being kind of this enclave for uh, for lesbians, mostly white lesbians, actually. Um, but there are... LGBT folks scattered across my district. I met with young black LGBT, uh, mostly lesbians uh, like me, who are in Stone Mountain. There's a substantial population of us. Excuse me, in Stone Mountain, there are folks in, in Tucker and Lilbert. I mean, we are everywhere, honestly, and we are scattered throughout our district. I'm not sure, you know, some of us are more out or less out than others um, in our in our hometowns. And I certainly I found myself meeting people who were constituents of mine, not in District 41. But if like I went to a a Georgia Equality event, I would meet somebody and they'd be like, I live in your district. But, you know, we only knew that because we were at that mixer. But there is a substantial community. There's also a substantial community of LGBT folks in my district who have children or are in the process of having children. And so parenting um, is a, 
and the ability to parent is a huge issue in my district when it comes to LGBT folks and wanting to make sure their rights are protected. You mentioned uh, when you go to the attend the Pride Parade and, and bringing along young uh, queer people and, and also in your work as uh, as a priest and, and mentoring and, and, and talking and counseling uh, young queer people. Any uh, guidance for, for, for young LGBTQ people who are trying to, who are struggling with reconciling uh, being queer with also with their faith? I know that struggle very well. I struggled with it. I, I think I probably had some inklings that I was gay even as early as high school, um, but really wrestled with it in college. And what I needed was I needed to know that there were Christians, because that's my tradition, right, who were both Christian and gay. And at the time, I lived in a, in a small town where that that was not available to me. And so I would hope that young young folks, and, and it's not just young gay people or young LGBT folks who struggle with reconciling their faith. They're older folks too, because unfortunately with, within Christianity, especially um, the, the larger narrative, the louder narrative has also often been one that was anti-LGBTQ. And so I would encourage everyone, there is someone, there are a lot of us actually who love like you and believe like you and there are communities for me I needed to find a worshiping community that accepted LGBTQ folks that's how I found the Episcopal Church and I encourage others to go and find those worshiping communities talk to the faith leaders in those communities Um, now there's a growing number of out LGBTQ clergy people as well which is I think it's exactly what I needed when I was you know 18 in college and in love with my roommate and I didn't have that but that's available now and so I encourage folks to you know just google welcoming and affirming open and affirming congregations in Atlanta or or wherever it is this is a podcast so you could be anywhere in the in the world listening to this Um, and but there is a community for you and and fundamentally whether or not you find a community or not I think it's really really important for all of us to know that God loves us and that God loves us regardless And in fact, I think God loves us because of how we love Um, that we every time we love someone that that is a little bit of shine on uh, God. I think God gets excited about the fact that we love someone. And I don't think that God gives a damn. Can I use that word on here? It's a podcast, so you can say anything. (laughs) I don't think that God gives a damn about the gender or the race or the beliefs of that person that we love. I, I think that God is just excited when we love. And so that would be my encouragement. For months now, Metro Atlanta has seen protests and marches for racial justice and, and police reform. Did that impact the your campaigning or impact the issues that were, were discussed during the campaign? The protests and, and marches happened just like right at the end of um, the leading up to the primary. And so there wasn't a huge um, impact other than I became Um, my campaign manager would say I became very distracted from my campaign. I would say, I would say that I did the work that I was called to do, which is to be with the people on the streets. And uh, for me before, you know, before the election, I was out on the streets and, you know, solely as a a citizen, as a black citizen, as a black clergy person, that was kind of the the role that I took. Um, But I'm also deeply committed, you know, after I'm elected that I still will be with the people on the streets as a lawmaker as well, because I think that's really, really important. Uh, And so, 
the the emergence of um, of this kind of racial awakening, I did begin to use my social media for my campaign to highlight black issues, to talk about my stance on these, about why it's important for us to eliminate stand your ground laws, about the ways that hate um, impacts and is an insidious uh, disease within even Georgian culture. And so um, those things did show up. But again, I think my campaign manager would say there was a, a little bit of a distraction. Um, but for me, is in I think innately just a part of who I am is to stand up and say, yes, Black Lives Matter. And I am here to to amplify that and also to support protesters in that call. How do you or any advice or counsel to, to people who are who are protesting about how protesting turns into political change and, and how that's sort of a protesting is a very immediate thing. Political change, uh, especially at the state capitol, is is not. Not. Uh, we saw that back uh, in June with the debate over the hate crimes bill and the Republican response to that, which was passing a bill that further protected uh, law enforcement officials or officers. So how do you what do you tell folks who are who are out there protesting and they're impatient and want change and that the reality of is that that change is going to probably come slower than than they would like? Uh, so I'm reminded of uh, of John Lewis, uh, God, you know, rest his soul, and his uh, his speech at um, in 1968 in Washington. He he says, you know, we don't want slow incremental change. We want change now. The time is now. There is an urgency uh, to this change because lives are at stake, right? And uh, I certainly resonate with that and and do believe it. I believe that now is the time and change. The need for change is urgent, and it is true. Um, change often takes real time. And so I would encourage protesters to know that this is a long game that we are playing, but we are closer than we've ever been before. I think that's really important as we kind of sit in this place that can often feel hopeless is to know that we are closer than we've ever been before. Uh, and the last thing I'll say about this piece is that, you know, I led rallies and protests out on the steps of the Capitol for years. I know how to I know how to like run a good rally. Give me a bullhorn. I gotcha. And at some point it occurred to me that I spent more time outside of the Capitol than I did on the inside of the Capitol. And so I want to encourage protesters to take up their right to come inside. Um, what I learned, you know, Abel Mabel is a long-term representative in the House. Uh, she she once called me and she said, I heard y'all were out there, but I didn't know. We can't hear y'all out there, so we didn't know you were there. And that was a huge lesson to me. And so I would encourage protesters, particularly when we're in session, if you lead a protest outside on the steps or you circumvent the, the Capitol or you're down in, which I think was in you're down in that well in Freedom Park where nobody can see you. Come up out of there and walk into the Capitol and call your senators, call your representatives to the ropes. You have a right to talk to us um, and to share your issues. And so I, I would hope that we would couple those things um, so that you protest on the streets and you also walk inside the Capitol to help push for change, to push for change more rapidly. We're also in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic and, and here in late July, it's uh, again surging in, in Georgia. How has that impacted you? 
mean, COVID has impacted the world, right? Um, I I have been fortunate in that I have a job that allows me to um, work from home. And, uh, you know, honestly, my hours are substantially less now because I work with a, I work with people who are mostly homeless. And so I can't live stream services for them. And so despite me actually working fewer hours, I continue to be paid at the same rate. So I feel incredibly blessed by that. Um, and my household is safe in that way. But I'm mindful that there are people all across the world, literally, for whom that is not the story. And I've, I've trying to be sensitive and to advocate to make sure that there are protections in place for them. You know, how I campaigned changed drastically. I went from having parties, house parties, that was my model. Um, we had house parties weekly, sometimes twice a week in people's homes. And that shifted immediately and abruptly to doing Zoom calls and postcard writing. And so that was a big change. Um, you know, I will say my brother-in-law actually came down with COVID-19 and was on a respirator for 14 days. Um, and so our family went through a process of being really afraid and, and really grieving. Um, and thankfully, he, he lived and, and now can is returned home to his, his wife and kid. Um, but... Uh, Black and brown communities have been deeply impacted by COVID-19. I don't know any black person who doesn't know someone who has been deathly ill or who has died from COVID-19. And so um, I feel that there is... I feel that I carry a certain amount of grief, and I know that there is this grief. It's it's compiled by... Um, uh, it's, it's compiled by the racial awakening that is happening and by this fight for real change and um, progressiveness and fight against anti-blackness. And so you've got that on top of COVID and the amount of death that we've seen in our communities. And so, um, so it's, it's hard. This is a hard time. And it also, though, has given me real, I think, strength in terms of in resilience and resolve about saying, I have to get down to that capital to fight to make sure we get health care for our people, right? Um, it's given me the resolve to say, I've got to get down to that capital and really fight for an increase in minimum wage to increase access and opportunities for folks like if now, like more than ever before, we see how fragile our safety net is in Georgia, and it doesn't have to be that way. We can do better. So I am strengthened and empowered to go and fight even more. Kim Jackson, this has been great. I appreciate your time. My last question for you is where can people find you, follow you, find out more about the work that you're doing? My website is KimForGeorgia.com. I encourage you to go and check that out. But also my handle is um, KimForGeorgia on all social media. And so you can see me there. And then I'm actually going to plug my, my wife and I live on a little urban farm out here and we have goats and chickens and ducks. And yeah, we, we do this whole like black homesteading thing. We've got bees. It's pretty amazing. So if you want to see us on IG, we're Urban Soul Sanctuary on IG. That's herb in the number, the letter in Soul Sanctuary um, on IG and you can see lots of photos of, of our little homestead farm so I encourage you to check that out too. I love that. I'm going to add you on my Instagram because I just love that. That's fantastic. So this was fun. Thank you again, Kim. I really do appreciate it. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Subscribe to Podcast Q to keep up with new episodes and follow us at the QATL. Uh, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Matt.